Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. I'm your host, Anne Foster, and this is season two, episode three. This season's topic is women leaders in history and the men who whined about it. And for the third week in a row, we are looking at Roman men whining about a woman. Because isn't it interesting how in ancient Roman society... There was sort of this expectation that women should be sort of seen and not heard and just sort of hang around and give birth to babies and maybe like gracefully die by suicide if they became too inconvenient to the men around them. This was sort of the society and what Rome, the Roman Empire, was trying to make things be like. And then one after another, these super powerful badass women got in their way, almost like their whole concept was incorrect and like women had their own minds and brains and didn't want to behave that way all the time. So we saw in episode one of this season, Cleopatra. Episode two was about Agrippina. And today, sort of the third, I always think of these women sort of in a cluster of people together where it's just like one woman who really annoyed the the men of Rome. And then they, you know, she dies and then another one pops up and she dies and then another one pops up. And that's who Bodica is. She is the third one. I'm going to pronounce her name Bodica because that is what I, how I think it's said. Although some people pronounce it Boudica for a long time. People thought it was called Bodicea, but that was based on just misreading somebody's writing where they thought a C was an E at the end. But as we will learn, she's a woman who a lot of what was written about her was sort of guesses by people who were, were around back then because she was, well, let's get into it. So, uh, the women who we're talking about today lived about 2,000 years ago, and the word Buddha, B-O-U-D-A, is an ancient Britain word meaning victory. So, it's entirely possible that she was called Boudicca by the Romans, because they didn't know her name, she just won a lot, so they were just kind of like, we don't, we don't know her name, we're just going to call her like, the one who wins all the time. Although that could have also been her name. Like maybe she went all the time and people called her that. Or maybe in sort of a fortuitous naming thing, they called her that as a baby and she grew up to fulfill the destiny of that name. We're calling her Bodica. And because we don't know anything else to call her, that is what we are going to call her. So even more so than when we were looking at Cleopatra and Agrippina, everything written about Bodica was written well after she was around by people who didn't actually deal with her personally so rather than me saying like allegedly in front of literally every sentence just sort of imagine it I'm just gonna say allegedly right now and that will sort of encompass everything I'm going to tell you so the things that we have as sources are two men who wrote about her well after she was dead and also some archaeological evidence which when you put it together it sort of backs up what 
some of these men were talking about, but also the men writing had their own reasons for spinning things in a certain way. And we're going to get, we'll get into it. I'll explain everything. But basically, again, with a big allegedly HTML code around all of this. So Bodica was probably born around the year 30 AD. So she was born to an aristocratic family in the Roman-occupied city of Camulodunumen, Camulodunumen, which was in the southeast part of modern-day England. So it's where modern-day Colchester is, if you're familiar with, with the UK. I'm here in Canada, and that doesn't mean a lot to me personally, but basically southeast England, Camulodunumen. So she was born in this Roman-occupied place, and it was a sort of situation where the rulers of this place would have been behaving kind of like Romans because they were dealing with the Romans. So that's sort of what the first part of her life perhaps was like. When she was probably about 18, she was married to King Prasitagus of the Iceni. Iceni? And so she became the queen of the Iceni by virtue of this marriage. The Iceni were a Celtic tribe who lived in, so again, southeastern England. And because Rome had invaded, hey, do you remember how, if you heard last week's episode, when we were talking about Agrippina and stuff, her husband Claudius is the one who was emperor at the time that the Romans invaded Britain. So this is kind of where the stories overlap with each other a bit. So Prasutagus, who is the husband, the king, like in order to stay being king while the Romans were occupying, he had to make some deals, um, make some compromises to just to make his life as good as possible. So for instance, the Iceni were permitted to remain independent of Rome as long as Prasitagus paid annual fees to the Romans and also supported them politically, like against the the local tribes, basically. So as part of this deal, Prasitagus agreed that when he died, the kingdom would be jointly inherited by his two daughters as well as by the Roman emperor Nero. So Nero, who you might remember from last week, was Agrippina's shitty son who killed his own mother had a gross neck beard and we hate him so he was the emperor at this time but the thing so Prasitagus had two daughters no sons and this was the sort of situation where I mean we look at so many different times and place on this podcast and I do just in my various historical researching and stuff and it's often in what I'm reading about which tends to be renaissance England tends to be what I've read a lot of before but just other cultures too like some medieval scenarios and stuff where it's just kind of like ancient Rome as well where women just didn't have the rights to inherit stuff like usually the father would just be like I need to have a son because he'd have like a boy who's going to inherit everything these daughters like what we do with our daughters is we just marry them off that's it but seemingly in this situation um, among the Iceni it was cool that his daughters would inherit from him so Good for them, I guess. A little more forward-thinking than the Grosso Romans. Anyway, so Prasitagus' will basically said when he died, the kingdom would be jointly shared by his daughters and Nero. So it would be part of the empire, but Boudicca would be the regent until the girls came of age, which is like a very specific thing to put in a will. Like he's really writing this out as though he expects to die before his wife and just really wants to make sure everything is figured out in a very specific way, which I mean, like, on the one hand, good for him, but on the other, it's like, I don't know, after after the Agrippina episode last week, I'm just, like, really suspicious of people writing wills, and did they mean to say 
what they wanted to say. The important part of this is effectively that the kingdom upon the death of Prasetagus would be sort of inherited by Nero, shared with the daughters. That's what he wanted, but he wasn't in control of very much. Anyway, so, but this is, so for this first part of their married life, Bodica was probably hanging out, being sort of like a Roman-style woman, um, perhaps speaking Latin, sitting around, you know, drinking wine, wearing a toga, just sort of being like a, like an I Claudius sort of situation with just, you know, people making funny jokes and maybe doing plays for each other. I don't know, just like aristocracy. So, which I find really interesting because what we're going to get to and what how Bodica is known is as this kind of like feral warrior person. But she started off her life not like that. There's going to be a shift that's going to come in a really awful way in probably a few minutes. I'm going to talk about it. So what did she look like? So there was a Roman writer named Cassius Dio who never met her, but he seems to have read accounts by people who did meet her, described her as, and this is a translation, he wrote, and this was like a hundred years after she was ever around. Anyway, so he wrote, quote, In stature, she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colors over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. So a few things there. First of all, hashtag goals. One day I hope someone describes me as in the glance of my eye, most fierce. So he was grossed out by her because she was a woman and he thought women were gross, especially when they weren't just staying quietly in a house raising children. So he says she was tall. She looked terrifying. She had these intense eyes. He goes on about how her voice was unpleasant, which I think to him was more just like she was a woman who talked and had a voice and that was enough to bother him. Even just a hundred years later, he's like, ugh, there's this woman. Sounds like she like raised her voice sometimes. Gross. He also mentioned her hair was, this translation I just read, called it tawny. Some people call it red. The word that he used is a similar word that he uses in another part of his writing to describe a lion. So it could be her hair was like golden colored, like a strawberry blonde type of thing. She's famous. Well, she's sort of famously known as being this like long red haired goddess. So we'll never know what color hair it is. I have red hair, so I like to think her hair was red, but my hair is also kind of strawberry blonde, so I'm like okay with that as well. But basically, she was an imposing, intense-looking person who sounds amazing. So just getting back to sort of what the ancient culture was like that she was living in. So the whole thing about the daughters co-inheriting the kingdom from from their father. So this wasn't like literally a matriarchy but women in the Iceni kingdom were allowed to own property they could inherit land and titles and you know were allowed to go outside and like be seen as people unlike women in Rome but so basically what happened is that Prasetagus died which seems sort of like I guess that's why he's writing his will maybe he was sick I don't know so he had this will. Everyone was like, this is what's going to happen. But then the Romans came in just like, psych, like, we don't care what this will said. We're horrible imperial colonizers. And they seized control entirely themselves. So at this point in time, the Roman governor of Britain was a man named Suetonius Paulinus. He was 
not literally there in person when they took over after the death of Prasetagus, but so it was likely some Roman veterans and others who weren't off with Suetonius at this time who did the actual pillaging. Um, and what they did is they plundered the palace, um, Boudicca's home palace. They plundered the homes of all the Icenian nobility. They turned Prasetagus's relatives into slaves. Uh, they stripped all of the Icenian nobles of their property. So they just like fully... Not just like, oh, we're going to be king now or whatever. They're like, oh, no, we're going to, like, destroy you. So claiming that Prasetagus had died still owing debt to the Roman empires, they uh, publicly stripped and flogged Boudicca and allegedly raped her young daughters. So this is the purpose of doing something like this would be just to sort of make the people, the Iceni, not revolt against them to make them see like this is what we're doing to your queen to this really respected woman like the to rape the young daughters would be a way of saying like you know we have ruined quote-unquote these these young girls to to strip and flog Bodica like that's treatment that maybe um enslaved people would have been treated to so to do this to the queen was them saying like we don't respect you or your people at all so this was it was basically an act of war and so these acts were specifically malevolent to the Iceni I mean for obvious reasons it's she was their queen and this was awful but also just culturally to them Boudicca and her role was sort of like a priestess as well as sort of a representation of a goddess on earth so it's not just just like so they had assaulted these two girls and their mother but in so doing, they'd also sort of desecrated the Iceni's entire culture and religion. There's another another one of the sources here is a Roman writer named Tacitus, who was writing a few decades after the fact. But again, he might have talked to people who knew what was up. And so as per him, after this happened, Boudicca swore then and there that she was going to get revenge against the Romans for all of this for the way that she was treated for what they did to her daughters for the way they just pillaged the town for how they didn't honor her late husband's will so tacitus says Boudicca said so quote nothing is safe from roman pride and arrogance they will deface the sacred and will deflower our virgins win the battle or perish that is what i a woman will do and so it was on basically she's just going on her revenge battle streak like it's happening so one of the ways that the romans had been able to so completely take over britain the island which was comprised of all these different groups and tribes of people was that they took advantage of the inter-tribal rivalries between the different kingdoms they were able to because everybody was fighting against each other they weren't they didn't even think of teaming up together against the romans but in so doing the thing is that they meant that all of these groups now had a single shared enemy i.e the romans all they needed was a leader strong enough to unite them and they found this in Boudicca so again um Suetonius Paulinus the governor was yet again out of town and Boudicca got to work building up an army of sort of all tribes put together so first up she and the Iceni people joined with their neighboring tribe who were called the Trinovantes which were possibly the tribe that she herself was from originally, so it makes sense that they would they would team up with her in this situation. 
So the Trinovantes had been allied with the Romans for almost 100 years, during which time they had come to despise them because the Romans were awful to them. Awful in many ways, frankly, in this period of time. So the Romans had taken over the Trinovantes' capital city, which was called Camulodunum. Camulodunum, which is just like a really delightful word to look at. Anyway, so Camulodunumun was sort of a retirement community for military veterans. Uh, the Romans had forced the Trinovantes to build a temple there in honor of Claudius, because remember Claudius was the emperor when they first took over. Uh, and so this he was dead at this point, Claudius, but this was to honor his memory. So they, the Romans basically took over the city, bust in all of their military veterans, and then made them build this temple in honor of an emperor who none of them really liked, who was responsible for them being there in the first place. So this city and its temple symbolized everything that all the non-Romans hated about the Roman occupation. So Boudicca was like, hey, Trinovantes people, like, what if we invade Camulodunumun? And so the Trinovantes were like, where and when and sign us up? Like, let's do it. So rebellion commenced. So Boudicca delivered a scathing speech, like a super like psyching everybody up sort of moment. And everyone got really excited about it. And then she did something that I will quote from Cassius Dio to explain. So he, she gave a speech to these sort of like allied forces. And as per Cassius Dio, what happened next is when Boudicca had finished speaking, she employed a species of divination, letting a rabbit escape from the fold of her dress. And since it ran on what they considered the auspicious side, the whole multitude shouted out with pleasure. So this was sort of like a Groundhog Day scenario. So in Boudicca's culture, the rabbit or the hare was likely some sort of a holy symbol. And so which direction it ran in, just sort of one way it was auspicious and one way it was not. So they, with the, the hare, sort of went the way they wanted to, and so things were great. So off they went. So when they arrived at Camulodunum, the Roman army was mostly not even there because they were off fighting somewhere else. And this was unexpected to them. This was a surprise ambush attack. They weren't expecting to be invaded by tens of thousands of irate Britons. And the people who were living there, remember, it was like a little retirement community. So they were sort of older people, uh, maybe not in as amazing shape as some other soldiers. So they were entirely unprepared. They sent a messenger to try and get help from the governor, from Suetonius. But Suetonius was like, mm, not a big deal. Like, you're, you're fine. You're like all military veterans. Deal with it. But, so what happened is that Boudicca and her forces decimated the city to the point that archaeologists who've examined the site 2,000 years later were like, oh shit, like, look what happened here. So the city was entirely destroyed via burning. Like, there was a layer of burnt ash underneath were Roman items from, like, literally this year, like the year 60. There were also, like, dead skeleton bodies all over the place, and the skeletons themselves have been butchered, like, the people had been just, like killed in the most brutal ways and then maybe like ripped apart afterwards or something so it wasn't just human bodies that were decimated so in the course of the battle or maybe like post battle victory party uh the team decapitated the head from a bronze statue of nero so there there was the statue the temple was built to honor claudius but there's a giant statue of nero and Boudicca's forces decapitated the head off of a nero bronze statue which is just like so satisfying I mean, must have been so satisfying to them. And they kept it with them as a trophy. Like, they just carried the head around. Like, badass. So, 
Uh, then this military guy named Quintus Petilius Surrealis tried to be a hero and tried to take the city back with his own forces, but did not work. Bodica and her team, they were just like running on adrenaline and just like being amazing warriors. And so she killed almost all of his forces. And that was like step one of her multi-step plan to just like destroy all the Romans in Britain. So word of her military amazingness spread and her army grew as she marched with people from all different former warring tribes. Like she was just kind of going around like conscripting people. She's just like, hey, do you hate the Romans? We do too. Join Boudicca's army. And so it was a sort of like group of all people from different tribes and the tribes who used to hate each other, but they all just hated the Romans so much more because they all just wanted revenge because the Romans had been shitty to all of them. And so the further she marched, the bigger her army became until it was up to something like 100,000 people, oppressed Britons, just sent on destroying their oppressors, just like the revolution is here. And she was still just getting started. So the next place that they went on to was Oldie Times, London. So back then, London was called London Dinium, and it was a pretty recent-ish city. It was about a 20-year-old city, and it was a commercial slash trade center and home to about 30,000 people. And when the 30,000 people in London Dinium heard that Bodica and her like 100,000 people were on their way, the entire population just like peaced out and fled without even attempting to defend the city. Like they were just like, we're just gonna let Bodica's army have the city so we don't die. Um, and again, archeological evidence that's been found more recently revealed that Bodica's team literally burned down the entire city. They tortured and murdered any Romans unlucky enough to have been left behind. Um, the whole torturing, murdering thing. Again, if you put everything in the context of like what was up, like they were at war. They were this this ragtag group of, of people who were using sort of shock and terror in the same way the Romans had um, assaulted Bodica and her daughters, where it's just like if you kill a bunch of people really gruesomely, and then just like leave their bodies up, up on sticks or whatever, like Vlad the Impaler style. Like the bodies would rot, which is gross, smells bad, might keep people away. But also it just shows people it's a warning of like, hey, do you want to cross me? Like, here's what I'm going to do to you. So having now destroyed the two largest Roman settlements that they could find, Bodica's army turned to the third largest because I guess they're like working their way down. Solid planning. And so the next place was called Veru, Verulamium. Verulamium. So the thing with the city is that it was run by a tribe called the Catuvalauni, who hadn't been enslaved by the Romans, but more like they had just sort of like rolled over and let the Romans take over without really fighting them about it. So they were sort of um, not as respected and also not as likely to rebel against the Romans because they just kind of like were okay with it. So Boudicca's army just kept marching, kept getting bigger, like just the image of just like literally like a snowball rolling down a hill and just becoming bigger and bigger and more people, you know, word would spread this was happening. It's like, this is our time. All the oppressed, like join with us. So this huge army heads towards Verulamium, taking a cue from the people of London Dinium, who were smart enough to run away. The people of Verulaminium dropped what they were doing and ran away rather than face the forces. And again, Bodica and company burned the entire empty city down. And then they went off to hunt down, torture, and kill anyone they could find to just like continue being like, we're serious about this. We're scary. Like, beware the Romans. Like, 
hopefully like they could just be terrifying enough that the romans themselves would just like peace out on their own but au contraire the romans having now lost basically their three biggest settlements in britain were a little bit upset by all of this adding to their annoyance was the fact that these really successful and gruesome military campaigns were being run by a woman and they hated women so the romans thought that all the people in britain were sort of like uncivilized monsters like savages sort of thing and they also thought that women were sort of like trophies for men and not people in their own right so to be outsmarted three times by a woman from britain was just like brain exploding to them they're just like what is even happening so this was 30 years after cleopatra had had thoroughly challenged the romans and just a year or two after agrippina the younger had sort of made her own power move so they're just like the romans are like what is happening vis-a-vis women keeping bothering us um so they they were a little frustrated and annoyed by having yet another warrior woman to face off against so and this is sort of like on top of their like general baseline cultural hatred of women they were at a point of just like really being tired of of women getting in their way so cassius dio decades later wrote all this ruin was brought upon the romans by a woman a fact that in itself caused them the greatest of shame so the romans were like let's deal with this and so what they did is they amassed ten thousand men to face off against Boudicca's band of rebels and she had hundreds of thousands of people so the romans had a ten thousand people which is like a lot of people. Boudicca had something like 300,000 former enslaved Britons fighting on her side. And rather than sitting around waiting to be attacked, Boudicca's growing, ever-growing army marched right over to meet the Romans to do battle with them. But, little did she know, leading the Roman forces that day was the same guy who had been out of town when she started this campaign. The one who had ordered to have um, her hometown destroyed, to have her assaulted, etc. Basically her arch enemy the British governor, Suetonius Paulinus. Now, the site of this battle is unknown, but we do know that beforehand, famously, Boudicca rode around in a chariot with her two daughters. Her two daughters are often with her as a sort of like, to show, I don't know, maybe a reminder of like, you know, they tried to defeat me and my daughters by attacking us, but look at us, we're stronger than ever, etc. So she just kind of like, if you picture like, Coachella or something just like a huge field full of like so many people and she was just riding around her chair with her daughters hyping everybody up these like 300,000 people and she gave an amazing speech in her quote-unquote harsh voice the Dio thought was so annoying I mean just an, an amazing moment I love this for her so as recorded by Tacitus her speech included the following line and this is a quote quote of a thing Boudicca allegedly said we British are used to women commanders in war, but I am not fighting for my kingdom and wealth now. I am fighting as an ordinary person for my lost freedom, my bruised body, and my outraged daughters. You will win this battle or perish. That is what I, a woman, plan to do. Let the men live in slavery if they will. And then everybody's like ready to rumble and the battle began. So, allegedly... Boudicca's team was so certain of victory that they had brought along their families and children to watch the battle take place, which wasn't like, apparently this is a thing that maybe people in Britain just did in general. This is just not a 
out of the ordinary sort of thing to have the wives and children. But also if you're all just like marching around 300,000 people going place to place burning, it's like, sure, bring your families with you. Like sort of like Star Trek The Next Generation. Like sometimes you just want to have your family with you when you're going off doing work. So this is a situation where we have the like 10,000 Romans versus the 300 something thousand ragtag group of Boudicca's forces. And the thing is that numbers aren't always everything. So the Roman army was a highly skilled, highly trained war machine. Like they were people who would like, they'd run drills, like they had tactics, they had armor, they had plans and were all organized. Versus Boudicca's team who had a numbers advantage and rage, lots of passion, a drive for revenge, but they all had sort of like their own fighting style, most of which didn't include armor. They were all different from all different places. There wasn't, Boudicca was the leader, but I mean, one person can't lead 300,000 people. There's probably like all different local leaders and maybe they, how do you communicate your plans and stuff? So basically, despite being massively outnumbered, the Romans pulled it out to the point that many of Boudicca's allies began to flee. Um, they were trying to escape. But tragically, all the tents they had set up for their families to watch got in the way. And so they got kind of smooshed up against them. They weren't able to escape and the Romans slaughtered everyone. The precise body count is not known because we don't even know where this happened. But it might have been something like 80,000 dead Britons and 400 dead Romans. That was a number that's reported by one of the people a hundred years later. The rebellion was over. The Romans had won this battle. In the aftermath of this loss, the lands of the Iceni and Trinovantes were destroyed by the Romans. So this is where, again, in a sort of standard war playbook, like you just the Romans wouldn't have wanted any chance of further rebellion coming from any of these people ever. And then on top of that, many of the tribes had been busy fighting these battles and marching around the whole island. They hadn't had time to plant seeds for the growing season, so meaning that many of those who hadn't died in battle died in a famine that followed right after. Boudicca's daughters, we don't know what happened to them after this. And I mean, we don't know what happened to them before this, really, other than the attack, because there wasn't a lot being written about them because they were not a literate society who wrote stuff down. We only know about Boudicca because of her interactions with the Romans. So the daughters, we don't know what happened to them. Boudicca herself seems to have died shortly after losing this battle to the Romans. She may have fallen ill. She might. She probably didn't die in battle because if she had, that'd be so dramatic. They would have written about it probably. Uh, one of the records suggests she poisoned herself to deny her enemies the pleasure of killing her, which is very Cleopatra of her. The Roman occupation of Britain lasted until the year 410. So that's, I mean, just under 400 more years. Uh, many of their structures became crucial elements in later battles for the Anglo-Saxon people who sort of were the next ones to take over most of Britain. So, and there's still evidence of the Roman occupation there today. So this whole thing was kind of a great rebellion. Didn't work, but Boudicca became this great sort of folk hero type person. So... Most of what we know about her comes from the writings of Tacitus, who Dio also wrote about it, but he was later on. So Tacitus's father-in-law, Agricola, had been governor of Britain a decade after Boudicca's revolt. So he might have heard from him some stories about what happened. His writings, they weren't well known until they were unearthed during the 16th century. So that's when Queen Elizabeth I became queen of England, the first, well not, 
the first really, really, really successful woman monarch in England. So she also had red hair. She also went into battle. So you could see where she might have wanted to connect herself with Boudicca to show. Because when she was queen as well, people were just kind of like, ooh, a woman leader? Like, I don't know. She has like a funny voice and she like has a period every month. So just to look at Boudicca as sort of uh, someone who'd done this before was maybe a way that she could reassure the patriarchal society she lived in that actually, yeah, guess what? Women can do this, especially cool red-haired women in armor. Boudicca's rise to prominence as a sort of British folk hero came during the next most successful woman ruler in English history, which was Queen Victoria, which is interesting because Victoria is a name that also means victory. So it's the parallels are even stronger there as well. So Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, commissioned a sculptor named Thomas Thornycroft, great name, to create a bronze statue of Boudicca in her chariot with her two daughters. So Albert was all about horses. He was all about statues. And again, just connecting the current queen to this legendary queen of the past to sort of connect, um, to connect the current woman leader with a past woman leader to be like, look, women leaders can be cool sometimes. So the statue is called Boudicca and her daughters. Well, actually, it's called Bodicea because that was back when there was a spelling mistake in her name. So this statue was put up in, I think, the early 1900s after Prince Albert had died. Anyway, the statue is very famous. I'll put a picture of it on the Instagram in case you haven't seen it. It was erected in London on Westminster Bridge near the Houses of Parliament, which is like really interesting. So like pause to think about it. So Bodica, who what who she was, like what she stood for was anti-imperialist, anti-colonial rebel who didn't write. Um, she became identified with Victoria and with Elizabeth who were both heads of imperial, colonial empires of their own. So Boudicca was just weird that she became identified with them when actually if she had lived in those days, she would have been against them, basically. But what I find really interesting slash ironic in sort of a Alanis Morissette way is that the statue of Boudicca with her daughters and the horses, it stands guard over London, which is the new version of the old city of Londondinium, which is a city that Boudicca famously, like, thoroughly destroyed and burned down in her quest to for liberation. So now the statue is sort of like Prince Albert erected it to be like, look at this cool great leader, like, Britain has this cool history of women leaders, when actually it's just like a statue commemorating a woman who burned down the city that they all live in because she hated imperialism, colonialism. So, um, just in terms of bibliography here, Bodica, I learned a lot about her. So the Rex Factor podcast is a special episode dedicated to her. And I also listened to the, um, to the You're Dead to Me podcast about Bodica, both of which I super recommend. I think it's a story that one, it cannot be told too many times. There's all different angles that you can look at it from. Those two podcasts get more into like the military details of it and kind of more of like the where in England did this all take place. So you can fill in those bits there as well. There's a couple of films. Um, there's a 2003 film called Warrior Queen, which stars Alex Kingston from River Song from Doctor Who as Bodica and Emily Blunt, a little baby Emily Blunt, plays one of her daughters. And most of the research I did was from a variety of different um historical websites which i will link to 
in the show notes, but I want to mention as well, there is a very recent biography of Bodica called Bodica, Warrior Woman of Roman Britain by Caitlin C. Gillespie. And you can get that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes um, if you buy it. If you decide to purchase that, the ebook or the book book or whatever, if you click through the link in the show notes, then some of that, then I get a little monetary bonus so you can support this podcast while also getting a cool book. Speaking of this book, uh, Bodica, Warrior Women of War- Roman Britain by Caitlin C. Gillespie is also available on Audible. And I've got my little, this is my commercial corner time. If you go to audibletrial.com slash vulgar history, you can get a 30 day free trial of Audible, including getting one free audiobook. And so you could get this Bodica book and just learn more about her deal and what she was up to. And it's time to to score her. And this is an interesting one because well, so little is known about her and the whole story took place over such a sort of condensed period of time. So the first category is scandaliciousness. Now, I didn't mention this in the podcast because this was sort of like an overview of her whole situation, but the whole um, killing people brutally and then leaving their dead bodies up as a warning for other people included some stuff like allegedly uh, she beheaded babies. She cut off women's breasts and stuck them in their mouths and then like threw the dead bodies down. So like, is that like usually the scandaliciousness we're looking at in these stories is more like sexy love affair related, but like acts of war and terror, but uh, other people are doing that too. So it's not like Bordeca was doing stuff that other people weren't doing at the same time and place. It's not the fact it was a woman though made it more scandalous. So it's a different sort of scandal than what we're usually looking at. I'm going to give her just a four for scandaliciousness. I think maybe there was cool other scandaliciousness stuff happening behind the scenes, especially when she was living like a Roman lady before everything went to shit. But we don't know about it, so I can't score her on that. Scheminess, I feel like is pretty high. So for some people, when we're grading them on the podcast, the scheminess is like, you know, gossiping around the court or like making secret plans to like run off with your lover or whatever. And those are the schemes they do. Bodica's scheming is more on par with more like a Cleopatra level where it's like making like literal plans for little like war actions. Like scheminess is more sort of like planning-ingness. But I mean, the fact that she got together this band of previously warring factions to like team up and go with her and like burn down three cities like it's more than scheminess it's like cleverness determination ambitiousness but we call it scheminess so i'm gonna call i mean she incited an entire rebellion like i'm gonna give her an eight for scheminess i think and again, if we knew more about her, maybe I could give her more. If we knew more about like the details of like how she snuck into places and how she burned down the places and stuff like that. Significance is a tricky one for her because ultimately what she did didn't win. The Romans stayed in power for whatever I said before, 400 more years or something. But then she reemerged as this kind of folk hero. A lot of people know who she is um, and just... She's become sort of a, almost like a feminist hero, just as like a woman who emerged in a world where not a lot of women were known for doing this sort of stuff. But her personal significance, I don't know. Like, I feel like because I scored people like Cleopatra, not super high in significance. Like, how high can I 
score Bodica for the same thing. At the same time, everybody, it's relative, isn't it? I'm going to give her a five for significance, I think. And then the final category is the sexism bonus, which is where we give points to make up for how much did the fact that she was a woman affect her life in a negative way. And this is where I think if she had been a man, things might have turned out. I don't know if they would have turned out differently, honestly. I think obviously the writing about her would have been different. Um, Tacitus especially. Apparently when he was writing, he was writing about how he thought that Rome was kind of shitty at this time. How um, if Bodica had been, like he was almost cheering for her side because he thought that the like the Rome period around when Nero was there was really shitty. But because she was a woman, he was just like, oh, but she had like a voice that she talked with. So I can't super respect her. Like, I think her her historical record would have been different if she was a man. And I don't know. But then like part of what happened was like she was driven to this point by the the sexualized gender based attack on her and her daughters. I'm going to give her a six. Six for sexism, I think. So let's just add this all up. So we've got 23 points for Bodica. So that puts her, I mean, again, the scoring, why am I doing this? It's a nice way to wrap things up and also to just sort of see where people land on a scale compared to each other. Not that anyone is better than anybody else, but it's just kind of like where, where do they land comparatively? So Bodica, she's at 23. That puts her above both Caroline of Brunswick and Mary Toft, who both had 20. And then she's just a bit below Frances Howard, who had 26. Tits out Frances Howard. I mean, come on. So considering how little we know about Bodica, I think that's a pretty a pretty fair score. And if, had we known more about her, it might have been higher. Who knows? And I guess that's that's the episode. So if you want to catch up with me, I mean, there's the whole season one you can listen to. There's the previous episodes of season two. There's more season two episodes to come. And Vulgar History is all over the place. So uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Just look up Vulgar History. We are there. If you want to, like, email me, if you have thoughts about things, about women, or if you want to discuss the score I gave somebody for something, like you think it should be higher or lower, if you have suggestions for people who you think it would be cool for me to write about, you can reach out at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. You can find more of my writing, including an essay I wrote about Bodica at annfosterwriter.com. I mentioned before, you can support the podcast by clicking through any of the Amazon links in the show notes, as well as if you go to audibletrial.com slash vulgar history and do up a little audible trial you can get the a book about Bodica, for instance or another woman from history and also we got a little bonus from there or you can just straight up support the podcast at patreon.com slash ann foster writer and there's something else i was going to say oh my goodness yes so we have a, a store a merch store so it's teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history and I've been making a new design every week for every woman who we talk about, which is basically I find an uh, image of them that's in the public domain. And then I put some a funny caption on it. And I love everything in the store. It's amazing. The Bodica stuff says it's a picture of her um, based on an illustration by, I think, Peter Opie. And it's just her and she's holding up one hand. 
and her daughters are next to her and it just says like look how many fucks i give and it's great and you can just look at it and laugh or buy it or whatever anyway teespring.com slash stores slash vulgar history and the other thing i wanted to mention as well is that when is this being posted this should be i believe this is being posted on march 11th so coming up super soon i'm going to be doing a march madness thing on twitter so if you follow me at vulgar history on twitter you can see all the information about that but what is going to be happening is it's uh, vulgar madness so i've made up a list of 64 of the most scandalous women from all world history not from just um british history which is what a lot of these podcast episodes are about from all over the place all different countries and it's divided into four brackets by the ancient world medieval renaissance and then modern the modern period so it goes from the minuses like before the year zero all the way up to 1900 because i had to cut it off at some point so i would say follow me on twitter just to get the details of that i think i should be getting it all started probably again it's march 11th when you're listening to this so i think probably this weekend coming up keep your eyes peeled for that and and that's the episode so i hope you enjoyed yourselves and i'll talk to you all next time Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.